Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. So all throughout history, civilizations have used parades and, and ceremonies to send off warriors or, or dignitaries um, or to, to receive them after they've been gone for a while. It's typical to see nations flexing their muscles by showing off their strength and their power. And when a king would return to his homeland, it was common for him to arrive on horses and chariots among great fanfare with these huge displays of wealth and power. One example um, was uh, one of the kings of France. Uh, he loved this fanfare. He ruled France for 72 years, and during that time, he built these grand palaces and monuments to showcase his own wealth and, and his own power. And he was known for his love of military parades and these uh, huge, uh, complex um, uh, processions. And it was common for this king to ride through the streets of Paris in a gold-plated carriage. And that was accompanied by an entourage of soldiers and musicians. See, he was a king who sought to demonstrate his power and, and his wealth by these displays of luxury and extravagance. Compare that with King Jesus. See, when millions of people flooded the streets of Jerusalem for Passover... Jesus rides into Jerusalem humbly on a lowly donkey. Not great fanfare, not huge chariots and huge military entourage, none of that. Just on a humble donkey. And you remember with the crowds shout out, right? We just sang it. Hosanna! They sang, Hosanna! They were, they were repeating that. Hosanna! 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 Hosanna means save us. And this was a phrase that they were using because they recognized that uh, Jesus um, was the Messiah who was coming to save them. So they kept saying, Hosanna. But see, for the people, for a lot of the people at least, this was a cry not of their spiritual condition, but more of uh, their desire for wanting a political victor. Somebody who can pull them out from under the dominance of the Roman Empire. They wanted somebody who could offer this kind of political difference. Uh, but they didn't uh, know that Jesus was actually on his way to offer them something so much greater than the political deliverance they think they needed. See, he's on his way to providing them a salvation that meets their greatest need, their need to be saved, their need for eternal redemption. But they didn't recognize this at first, see, they failed to take seriously the signs of the Messiah. 
that, is, that Isaiah prophesied about about 700 years prior to Jesus' arrival on the scenes. They failed to recognize that Jesus was the eternally humble king who paid the infinite cost of all of their sin. And that's true for us. Jesus is the humble king who paid the infinite cost of our every single sin. So we're jumping into our fourth servant song in this series that we're calling Songs of Easter as we're going through uh, the book of Isaiah, looking at the four different servant songs. So there's these four songs in Isaiah, um, and they talk about this, this servant who, who God is going to send, who's going to provide deliverance. Um, and we know in the New Testament, from the New Testament, that that servant is Jesus. Jesus fulfilled every single one of those prophecies to utter perfection. So, so, so there's these four servant songs, and we've, uh, we're starting the fourth one today. But here's what we're going to do with the fourth servant song. We're actually going to break it up into two parts. So we're going to look at the first half uh, today, this morning. And then next week, Pastor Dave is going to close with the second half of that fourth servant song, which talks more about the, uh, the victory of, uh, that the servant uh, experiences as a result um, of his obedience. So then jumping into this passage, we're going to see three different uh, things that prove the fact that Jesus did pay the infinite cost of our every sin. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, here's the first one that we're going to see. We're going to see that Jesus suffered humiliation so that we can be exalted. Jesus suffered humiliation. He, he humbled himself from the highest heights of heaven to the lowest lows of earth, all so we can be exalted. And this is what we see then in Isaiah chapter 52. So we're starting in Isaiah chapter 52, the last three verses, and then we're going to go to the first uh, six verses of Isaiah chapter 53. So Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 uh, through 15. And what we're going to see here is that Again, Jesus suffered humiliation so that we can be exalted. So remember, Israel had failed over and over again to be God's faithful servant to the nations. Right? God wanted to, to reveal himself to the world through the nation of Israel, but they were failing. So God has been promising them over and over and over again that he's going to send them a Messiah, someone who's going to come through King David's royal line, someone who's going to come and deliver them. He promised that someone was going to come, that this one, this servant, this Messiah would come and deliver them from their captivity to their enemies. Someone's going to come and deliver them from their corrupt and selfish leaders. And the people were waiting for a strong leader. They were waiting for a mighty king, an exalted deliverer, the kind of servant that is described in the beginning of this fourth servant song. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. So, so finally, this servant, the Messiah, is coming, and he's wise, he's high, he's lifted up, he's exalted. This sounds like everything that they need. This is the kind of deliverer they, they longed for, one who wouldn't fail like all the other human deliverers before them, right? Because it started with Adam, right? First, you had Adam. He was the first man, and he was also the first sinner. And then you have the second chance, Noah, right? Noah was kind of the, the restart there. And he was just as great a sinner as Adam, though. 
Then you had Abraham, Abraham uh, who was commissioned to start a nation, uh, but he couldn't even remain faithful to his own wife. From him then came a bunch of deceptive uh, boys who got the nation in trouble and spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And then came Moses who gave the law to the people, but he couldn't keep the law himself. And then came the judges, and we know the judges did what was right in their own eyes. Then came the kings, um, and most of the kings were corrupt. And then you see King David. There's a glimmer of hope there. You see David because he's a man after God's own heart. You you see this uh, David uh, defeat this giant monster of a man before becoming a monster himself and committing adultery, then orchestrating the assassination of his friend in order to cover up the adultery. And then comes Solomon, David's son. Right, Solomon, who so wisely built the temple to honor God, but then he soon builds other temples for the gods of the many wives he's going to bring into his home. So failure after failure after failure after failure. No one to save them, no one to rescue them, no one to deliver them, no one to redeem them. They were in desperate need of a wiser Solomon. They were in desperate need of a more honorable David. They were in desperate need of a just judge. They were in desperate need of a dependable Moses, of a faithful Abraham, of a noble Noah. They were in desperate need of a second Adam. So can you imagine their thrill then when Isaiah prophesies that this kind of deliverer is coming. He's going to be high and exalted and lifted up. Until they got to the next verse, because their thrill would have been short-lived. Because now imagine their shock when they now learn that their deliverer is seemingly going to be destroyed. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So in verse 13, Isaiah presented this servant uh, as one who is highly exalted. But now he immediately turns to the utter humiliation that this servant is going to have to endure. And this certainly isn't the kind of mighty and strong and powerful deliverer uh, that they had in mind. One whose appearance was so badly mutilated and so uh, terribly disfigured that he was beyond recognition. And yet that's exactly the kind of deliverer Jesus was the highly exalted Son of God, the one through whom all things were created. He stooped so very low to become one of his created beings in order to serve and to save the lowest of creation. See, our minds should really stagger at the severity of the sufferings that were inflicted upon Jesus and the humiliation that he endured throughout his life. Right, The creator of the world, standing trial before a self-proclaimed priest, as the onlookers punch Jesus in his face and spit on him and slap him and pull out his beard. The majestic God being mocked by Roman soldiers as they clamp down a crown of thorns onto his head. The all-loving one getting lashed and scourged with a skin-tearing, bone-sharp whip, and the one who offers rivers of living water up there hanging on the cross, asking for a sip of water himself. The lowest anyone ever sank was Jesus. No one has ever 
gone solo. But to what end? Right? What was the outcome of all this? What was the purpose? Look at verse 15. It says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So the outcome of his suffering is the sprinkling of many nations. What does that mean? Well, the book of Leviticus uses this word often, this word sprinkling, and it's talking about uh, the blood from sacrifices that would cleanse sinners uh, from their impurity. And this is what the Israelite priests used to do. So for example, when a leper was cleansed, a priest would sprinkle a little bit of uh, blood on him to show that his disease was washed away and that, that he's clean now, that he's healthy, that he's whole. So Isaiah here is prophesying about the work of Jesus, whose sacrifice is going to be effective enough to sprinkle, to forgive, to make holy people from all across the world, from many nations. He's going to cleanse sinners from many nations. As the gospel is preached and proclaimed throughout the nations, many will be amazed and speechless at the message of Christ, even kings, according to this verse. And as gospel workers go forth, to the nation sharing this life-saving message, many will see the truth of the message, and by faith they'll be sprinkled, they'll be forgiven, they'll be cleansed. I love the way Revelation 5.9 puts it. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus suffered humiliation so we could be exalted. On this uh, particular verse, um, Pastor Ray, Raymond Ortland Jr. puts it this way. Listen, he says, This is something new. All the world's top experts never thought of removing our guilt this way, that the servant of the Lord would judge our evil by bearing it himself in his own sufferings, even we who know the gospel struggle to grasp it. But this was the joy set before him to cleanse the very ones dehumanizing him. One solitary man, abandoned, ground into the dirt under our heel, giving to us in return life-transforming purity. It's the only way lepers like us are healed, and before him we are left in speechless wonder. The humble king paid the infinite cost of my sin, of your sin. Jesus suffered humiliation so we can be exalted. The highly exalted Son of God stooped low to become a human servant, one whose nature was, was appalling and disfigured beyond human recognition. So church, the servant is not one to be pitied by us. The servant is one to be worshipped by us. And it wasn't just Jesus' humiliation that caused him to suffer. That was one aspect of his suffering, his humiliation. But the next section in this fourth servant song uh, reveals the rejection that he would endure. So not only the humiliation, but also the rejection. Jesus suffered rejection so we can be accepted. Jesus suffered rejection from all the people. He even in that moment suffered rejection from the Father when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did all of that so we can be accepted by God. Look at the first verse of chapter 53. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, so unique and so strange is this message of the gospel that so many people are going to reject it. The coming of the deliverer had been predicted, but the prophecy hadn't been has been rejected. It wasn't trusted, wasn't believed in. Over and over again, God foretold that he would send the Messiah into the world through the nation of Israel, one who would redeem the world, but few people believed. In light of the coming of Jesus and in such clear fulfillment of so many Old Testament prophecies, we think that the prophecies and all those fulfilled prophecies would be accepted and believed by nearly everyone. But tragically, few have believed. And believers down through the ages have cried out exactly this phrase, who has believed the message he has heard from us and to whom has the saving, powerful arm of the Lord been revealed? See, this is ultimately a message of rejection. The Messiah comes, but he doesn't look like us. He doesn't talk like us. He doesn't act like us. He doesn't doesn't speak the way we do. He doesn't uh, talk loud enough or fast enough. He doesn't do the things we want him to do. He doesn't rule the way we think he should rule. He doesn't meet our expectations. See, we expected a lion, but God sent a lamb. We expected a king, but God sent a servant. Verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. See, the servant doesn't burst onto the scene like a a mighty tree or a fruit tree that's about to blossom. No, he comes like a young plant. That's what it says. He comes like a young plant from questionable roots. See, Jesus would be born in a time when being called the son of David really didn't necessarily mean uh, a whole lot because uh, Israel was under Roman occupation. Not to mention the fact that Jesus was looked down upon. He was looked down upon because of his status. He was looked down upon because of his parents' situation. He was looked down upon because he came uh, from that good-for-nothing podunk town called Nazareth. Right? What good can come from Nazareth? Plus, his appearance wasn't all that impressive. And most people expected the Messiah to be an attractive, charismatic leader with a dynamic personality who, when he speaks, people just flock to him. But Jesus wasn't particularly physically attractive. He didn't have a charismatic personality that uh, drew the crowds. Uh, nothing about his appearance was majestic. In outward appearance, Jesus was just an average, ordinary person who looked like us and who would fit into any any and every crowd, never attracting attention to himself. See, this is not the Messiah the world expected because it wasn't the Messiah we expected. We despised and rejected him. He was despised and rejected by his own people and by the Gentiles. Look at verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, the word despised here means uh, to to grossly underestimate. So the fact that Jesus was despised means he was grossly underestimated, and that's true when it comes to the Jews and their response to Jesus and when it comes to many of us and our response to Jesus, right? Because his own people grossly underestimated him when they condemned him as he stood on trial, 
And we despised him. We wanted nothing to do with him. We considered him worthless. Everything about him, his appearance, um, his, his teachings, the way he did things, his approach, what he says about life, what he says about money, what he says about possessions, what he says about heaven, what he says about hell, what he says about marriage, what he says about pride, what he says about humility. We weren't ready for any of this. We wanted nothing to do with him. In a world that's blinded by selfishness and power, Jesus doesn't even get a second thought from most. See, God revealed him to the world, but many rejected him. And Jesus suffered rejection so we can be accepted. And he suffered rejection not just in his death on the cross, but in his life. It says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He experienced tremendous rejection and hostility and suffering. Again, not just in his death on the cross, but also in his daily experience, his daily living. Right? He, he was born to a virgin mother. He was born in a stable under shocking conditions. He was born to a poor family. He, was, he had his life threatened as a baby. He was the object of Herod's wrath, um, who commissioned the slaughter of all the boys under two years old. He had to be moved around for protection when he was a baby. He was raised in that despicable place known as Nazareth. He, apparently his earthly father died when he was in his youth. He had no home as an adult, not even anywhere to lay his head. He had to depend upon others for financial support. He faced relentless temptation. He was hated and opposed by the religious people, and he had to face their constant hostility. He had to face all of the charges that were leveled against him, the charge of insanity that was leveled against him. He was charged with being demon-possessed. He was opposed by his own family. He was hated and opposed uh, by members of, that were in his own audience. He was betrayed by a close friend for 30 shekels of silver. He was left all alone at the end of his life, rejected and forsaken by all of his friends. And he was tried before the high court on the charge of treason. And then he was put to death by crucifixion, the worst possible manner of death in the first century. See, and the amazing thing is that he endured all of that for us. For us. Jesus suffered rejection. Jesus suffered ridicule for us. So he could be our substitute. So he could give his life to us. The humble king paid the infinite cost of our every sin. He was humiliated for you and for me. He was rejected for you and for me. And then the next three verses go on to show another aspect of Jesus' suffering, the fact that he was executed for you and me. Jesus suffered execution so we can be redeemed. Jesus suffered execution so we can be redeemed. Look at verse 4. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. See, Jesus bore all of his griefs and sorrows. Right? Jesus bore his griefs? Our. Listen to all the times from here on out, 4, 5, and 6, how many times you, he, you see we, us, or our. Right? Jesus bore all of our griefs and sorrows. They weren't his to deal with. They were ours to deal with. But he willingly took them upon himself. To some people, right, it looked like as Jesus was there on the cross, it looked like Jesus was being punished by God. Oh, he must have did something wrong. Look at God punishing him. 
And they weren't entirely wrong because God was punishing him, but God was punishing him not for his own sin, but for your sin and for my sin. God put his son to death for the sins of the world, including the sins of his enemies, the very ones who were rejecting him and crucifying him. In verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Listen to the he and the we that are continually in relation to one another in this verse. Isaiah gives four great assertions here to express the servant's um, willing substitution of himself for us. Right? We transgressed, so he was pierced. We sinned, so he was crushed. We got peace, he got chastisement. We get healing, he got wounded. Right? See, we're steeped in rebellion and, and in our iniquities deserving a death penalty. We're at war with God and we are in deep need of healing. All of our shortcomings nail us to the cross. But we didn't have to go up there because Jesus took our spot for us. All of our sins, all of our failures, all of our flaws, all of our shortcomings, all of it was crucified and transferred to Christ at the cross. He suffered for us. He was beaten for us. He was executed for us. He was pierced and crushed and chastised and wounded, according to verse 5. Now, to truly appreciate the extent to which Christ did all of this, it's really helpful to understand some of the suffering that he did endure. So after Jesus' trial, in which he was found guilty of blasphemy for claiming to be God, Jesus was flogged. Now, we tend to think of flogging maybe as a, as a whipping that will leave uh, a few marks on the back, um, a few contusions, something that we might see in the movies. Um, but it's uh, significantly different than that. And in fact, in uh, March uh, 1986, there was an issue uh, that came out uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And during that time, there were a team of medical doctors who studied the procedures of flogging and crucifixion and their effects on the victim. So they begin by describing the process of flogging. Listen to this. <clears throat> right from the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association. They said, the usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths, in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. The man was stripped of his clothing, and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, buttocks, and legs were flogged. The scourging was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles. See, Roman flogging was so brutal, so barbaric. Um, we actually have some documents from... Uh, uh, an author in the first century, and he describes an eyewitness, a first century eyewitness account to a Roman execution or a Roman flogging, and he wrote this. He said, the sufferer's veins were laid bare 
and the very muscles and tendons and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Now, we think that's pretty vicious. That's not where it ended. Because after that vicious flogging came the crucifixion. Right? So you had in the crucifixion spikes about five to seven inches long that were driven right through his wrists, uh, crushing uh, the median nerve. And that would have been uh, so painful. Uh, it was excruciating. In fact, that word, excruciating, um, it comes from a Latin word, which actually means out of the cross. That's where the word excruciating comes from, the, the, the cross. Um, so that's, that's how painful it was, that a word had to be made up for this. It was excruciating. So then after they drove the nails and spikes through his wrists and his feet, they hoisted him up on the cross. And due to the fact that, that he was hanging, though, uh, although Jesus was able to breathe in, he wasn't able to breathe out. And the only way he could breathe out was if he pressed really hard on his feet and lifted, and then he could get a breath out. And then he'd collapse again and breathe back in. And this would go on for only so long because it was typical um, during this time for the people to die of uh, asphyxiation. And because the Roman executioners were so precise in ensuring that their victim was dead, they confirmed his death by taking a spear, plunging it right between his ribs, puncturing the, the pericardium, which is that, that, that little uh, sac around the heart, and then the heart itself, causing um, the pericardium liquid, that like water-like substance, and blood to flow out. And on that cross, Jesus paid for our transgressions, for our iniquities, for our sins, for our failures, for our mistakes. So we're called to trust him. We're called to follow him, right? Not to wander away from him the way sheep wander away from their shepherd. Because this is how we're, gonna, we're closing on verse 6. Listen, Isaiah writes this. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, we're like sheep. When sheep go astray, they're in danger of getting lost. They're in danger um, from their enemies. Um, and they're also in a danger to themselves because it's possible that they could accidentally kill themselves. Within our very nature, just like the sheep, is a tendency for us to go astray, for us to follow our own desires, our own plans, um, our own paths, to chart our own life without any consideration of God. And when we do this, we're like sheep who go astray and set themselves up for danger, maybe even death. But there's wonderful news. This is the whole purpose. Jesus died. Jesus died to deliver us from the sin of going astray and from its death penalty that comes along with this. And he did this by bearing sin for us. It was for this very reason that Christ died. God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Our sins were actually lifted off of us and they were placed on Jesus and Jesus paid for the sins of every single human. He died as our substitute because we belonged on that cross. We belonged in Pilate's courtyard getting condemned to death and flogged. We deserve having a crown of thorns shoved onto our heads. But God, he died as our substitute in our place on our behalf.